Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. If you want to understand geology, study earthquakes. If you want to understand the economy, study the depression is the quote by former chairman of the United States Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke. I thought of his words after having the opportunity to hear from our guest today, as she described how her interest in geology has led to an international career in mining and now the Australian boardroom. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode with Stephanie Loder, Non-Exec Director of Clean Tech and St. Barbara, we dial into country Australia and discuss the challenges of building a board career. We cover what is diversity, we examine the importance of community, and Stephanie's focus on regional economic development and the need for a different way to provide infrastructure so the business can have a footprint. In sharing her career journey, Stephanie inspires us, and in particular, young women, to give everything a go. So sit back and enjoy this highly engaging discussion with Stephanie later. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. An interesting career. I guess the obvious question is, what made you decide to get into the mining industry? Well, that was quite simple, really. I was not exposed to the mining industry at all. I grew up in Perth, so I knew that Hammersley, I lived in the suburb of Hammersley, and I knew that there was these mines up in the Hammersleys, but that's about all the connection I had. But I was encouraged by one of my very good chemistry teacher, Mr. D'Souza, to apply for a scholarship that was run by Camelco. Right. So Camelco was the early name for Rio Tito Aluminium. And it was actually through that scholarship that I was exposed to the mining industry and I just became captivated in the scale and broad range of opportunities that the mining industry offered. In particular, I was interested in exploration because there was one thing that I determined after I went off and did my first vacation work in a lab at Boyne Smelters in Queensland is that I did not want to work inside in a lab I wanted to work outside doing some sort of science and spending as little time inside as possible. And out of interest, were mum and dad engineers or from the mining fraternity? Not at all. <laughs> so my father is a professor in New Testament theology Wow. Um, and also an ordained minister. He will be celebrating 50 years of being an ordained minister this year. And my mother is a psychologist who worked in rehabilitation, bringing people back into work after injuries or significant trauma and those sorts of things. So quite the opposite end of the spectrum. I came from two artsy people or socially minded people. And I've ended up in mining. So what were their thoughts when their their daughter came home one day and said, I'm going to pursue mining as a career? I think it wasn't that I was going to pursue mining as a career. It was more that I was going to be a scientist and I wanted to study geology. And I probably went through the same thing at school that a lot of kids do who were academically inclined is that you do all the right subjects and then you're expected to go into medicine or law or something along those lines. And I actually applied and got into medicine and had to go, oh, well, you know, that was the real shock when I got that letter saying, well, I actually don't want that. I've got this scholarship and I want to go into science and I want to do geology. But my parents, they brought me up to never consider that anything was unusual or out of the ordinary. So I don't ever remember thinking that something was ever not possible, you know, in the way that I was brought up, which is 
a nice way to be brought up. Yeah, it is actually. Why geology? Why the study of rocks? <laughs> so this goes back into my history. So my father, being a professor of theology, went and did a sabbatical in Germany. Mm. And I was actually born in Germany. So my mum is originally from Germany. And we went to live in Germany for about a year. And I went to school there. And so because of the German system, even though I was 10, 11, I went to high school where I actually had a subject called Erdkunde, which is earth studies. And we just happened to be doing geology and the structure of the earth and volcanoes and how the continents move in that year. And I was hooked. I loved it. I really, really enjoyed that. And I never really did that again in science in Australia when I came back to school. So I always had this thing in my mind that geology was fascinating. And when I looked at my science, you know, I did the maths and physics and chemistry and I had one slot left and it was a toss-up between geology and French and, you know, geology fit into my schedule and French didn't. So bye, French. Hello, geology. (laughs) May I ask, you started the career in geology and then obviously that leads to opportunities in mining. How difficult is it to get ahead in mining coming from a background of being a female? It's not necessarily difficult. There's more women in geology and in sciences generally, and that continues today. So we're talking the early 90s when I came out of university, and there was less women around, but there was a few in geology, and there were some really good role models. Megan Clark, Yes. she was in WMC at the time. She was a massive role model for me in particular coming through. You know, I looked to her to think, well, everything's possible. She was definitely there. And Louisa Lawrence was another person who was a role model for me. So it wasn't so unusual in geology and exploration to have women. In fact, my first boss was a woman and she was a fantastic explorationist. It wasn't that unusual. It was when I got more exposed to the mining side of things that I think I realised that there's a lot more men dominant in leadership positions So I had one experience where I wanted to go to Asia. I wanted to be transferred to Asia. And the head of the exploration in Australia said to me, are you really sure you want to go there? Is it going to be safe for a woman? And we had this experience together where we actually said, well, hang on, let's go and explore that question. Let's not assume that it will be unsafe for a woman. So we explored that question together and we determined that it certainly was possible. And I had a great experience living in Laos. So I think I just encountered along the way people questioning their stereotypes, but really mining, going into mining operations, there was a lot of dominantly male leaders. Look, for the benefit of the audience, Stephanie, do you mind talking us through the career? You know, you said exploration, you say mining. So maybe sort of of cover both topics and what it actually means. And then when leadership comes into play and management of large numbers. Yeah, sure, Greg. I graduated as a geologist and I started work in exploration. So I did exploration across in Australia, looking for gold and a little bit of base metals. I then went up to the Sepon project in Laos, which then became quite a significant mine for Oz Minerals and then subsequently MMG, and it's changed hands again now. And I worked principally in the copper area there. So I was involved in the discovery of the copper deposit that has underpinned, along with the gold, that development in Laos. And then I was in South America in exploration, And then I went to work at Diamond Mine and I transitioned across to more of an analysis role, which was what we would currently call probably value chain reconciliation. So looking at reconciling everything from what we know is in the ground to what we've actually sold to our customers. And in the case of diamonds, that's fascinating because you can actually talk about value and it's not just a product. It's a product that has a weight, it has a quality and it's sized and there's a whole lot of other variables. It's not just a pound of copper or whatever it might be. Uh, So I did that and that was the transition really for me into understanding more about the mining value chain, everything from the resource and the exploration work all the way through to sales and marketing and Mm -hmm. how we presented our product even into the consumer market with Pink Diamonds. And then I had a transition, if you like, when I went to work for Lee Clifford when he was the CEO of Rio Tinto and I spent a good part of a year working alongside him as an advisor or as an assistant, technical assistant. We were called executive assistants actually. Our role was to support the executive committee to liaise between the executive committee, the company secretary and by extension the board and the chairman. Terrific exposure and I think that's where the seeds were sown for me about 
what's the difference between management and board? Mm -hmm. And I actually started writing a list. This is what an MD does and this is what a managing director does of a business and this is how it relates to what a board does and that relationship. So I got exposed to that. And I mean, what a learning curve, right? So I was a Mm. geologist who was principally focused on being in the field or collecting data. And a lot of the roles I had actually were 2IC roles. I didn't have direct leadership roles. I had a lot of 2IC roles leading up to then. And then I was offered the opportunity to go and lead a project in India. And that was a recent diamond discovery, discovery of a diamond deposit that Rio Tinto had made. And it was about bringing that into fruition. So we didn't quite get there, but we did get a long way along the line. We got a mining lease, the first foreign company to get a mining lease for a diamond deposit in India, and we got a state support agreement. So we signed an agreement with the Madhya Pradesh state. So there was a lot of things we did that were set the project up. We just couldn't get through the quagmire of the national or central government regulations around environment and forestry, which on the face of it, are very laudable, but made it very, very difficult. And eventually, after I left the project a few years on, Rio Tinto determined that it was not for Rio Tinto to develop, it was time to hand it back to the government. But that was my first leadership role. And really, you know, I had up to 400 people working on the project at different times, in different types of roles. And then I came to Australia, and I led the North Parks copper gold mine for Rio Tinto and then subsequently it was sold and I led the transition to CMOC International who still own the mine now and we had up to a thousand people working there at different times depending on the projects but generally you would say it's a 600 person operation at North Park. So you talk us through North Parks what's the like you say a bit of the scale there but what was the exciting part of it all? The exciting part it is a residential mine in New South Wales so Mm -hmm. we live and work in the community okay. of parks. That was just fabulous. It was such a great transition. I'd been living in big cities, although at, at Divic you do live close to the mine, but it's still flying in and out to the actual operation. So you're driving 25 minutes to work and you go home every night in mining. That's really exciting. And it's more common here in New South Wales than it is in other parts of the country. But it, I think it's a great opportunity to be part of the community and genuinely part of the community. So it's a predominantly a block cave operation and it was the first block cave in Australia so that is a mass mining technique which is lots of money up front to develop a big hole in the ground underneath the deposit and then you have a very low cost operation just really dragging the rocks out as they fall through because you've already kind of destabilized them and you bring them up to surface and North Park's in the time I was there was producing on average about 50,000 ounces of gold roughly 40,000 So not a huge operation, but a substantial operation and good partners with Sumitomo Metal Mining and Sumitomo Corporation, who'd been there since the beginning. So very important relationships to maintain. And a workforce which is very long-term, a lot of great stories of people who've started at the base, if you like, or started in an operating position and ended up in leadership roles at the operation over 10, 15, 20 years. So great stories, great people, and a really, really fantastic culture at North Parks. So talk us through some of the challenging times, Stephanie, because it's never easy in mining. (laughs) Well, probably the most challenging thing was managing the transition, actually, between Mm -hmm. Rio Tinto, a big mining company that everybody had a lot of confidence in, to CMOC International, who no one knew, right? right. And actually were more known as China Molly at the time. So you've got the combination of, ooh, someone, a Chinese company, a foreign company, but you've also got this complete unknown what on earth do they do? Do they really value people? Do they really value the environment? Do they value the community? Lots of questions. I do think we managed the transition really well. So CMOC trusted the leadership team. It was a very small team on their side. The chairman, Steele Lee, and the CEO, Kalidas Matapedi, we worked together, I think, really well to look at, and I think I was able to struggle both sides, look at it from their point of view and understand that they wanted a good transition and they wanted to continue the good work that North Parks was doing. It wasn't just a window dressing. They did actually want that. They did want a good overseas operation to complement their operations in China that they had at the time and use that as a launching pad for an international mining company, which they have subsequently done. And on the other side, that understand what our employees and our contractors were thinking. And this leads into my board career is just really looking at it from a risk perspective. It's just boiling it all down to what are the risks and how are we going to manage them? 
in mining, we talk a lot about risks where we have preventative controls. So before something starts to go off the rails, and then we talk about mitigating controls. And it was about balancing and having both of those preventative controls, which if you think about it in a board context, that's all your assurance, etc. And then you want to know that if something does start to go all off the rails, that you've got these mitigating controls on the other side, which help to minimise the damage. And we really looked at all of our risks around people leaving, around significant changes to the operation. We had a probably a list of 10 or 12 risks, which were quite key. Yep. And we managed those with that looking at the controls, measuring the controls like you would in any risk environment, you know, having assurance, giving ourselves assurance and giving CMOC assurance and Rio Tinto assurance around those controls. And I think we managed the transition really well. We didn't really lose anyone we didn't want to lose. There was a couple of people who chose to move on and that was okay. It would have been good if they stayed, but their departure didn't destabilise the morale and it didn't destabilise the operation in any way. And actually we managed at the very same time to take about 25% of the operating costs out. That was part of the challenge is we were going through a cost reduction exercise. We really needed to change the cost base of the operation because we were going from quite high grades to much lower grades. We were dropping grades more than 25%, 30%. So that was probably the most difficult time and I think we came through it really well. I look back on that now and say it was fond times. I'm sure if I asked my husband or my family, they'd say, gosh, it was really tough. (laughs) What does the husband do? My husband is a general manager with Rio Tinto, so he manages technical capability for Rio Tinto. So he has had a very successful career as well. I'm really quite proud of the fact that we've both achieved a lot in our careers. We've had to take gambles along the way. You know, we went to Canada and I had a job and Brendan didn't necessarily have a clear idea of what he was going to do. And he ended up leading the exploration for Divic. He's a geologist as well. We've taken gambles like that, but I think we've learned that we can back ourselves. We're competent, we're capable. We've got reasonable reputations within the industry and I'd like to think building a bit more beyond that now. When the challenges come and we have to take a gamble, we can do it. You seem to be smiling a lot there, Stephanie. Obviously, mining really brought the best out of you. Would that be fair to say? You know, it's interesting because when I was at school I went and did my work experience as a teacher and the, what I dearly wanted to do was go into advertising. <laughs> I think about that sometimes because I think part of me is interested in how you tell a story, put your, I guess it is how do you talk to people's hearts, yeah. not just their minds and I'm fascinated by advertisements. I love Gruen. Yes. <laughs> I, I love watching ads and understanding how they work. I think about that, not that I think I'm terribly good at it, but I do think about that in the way we tell stories, the way we tell stories about ourselves, the way we tell stories about our industry and the way people relate to that. In holding a leadership role, you had to hire a number of people. What stories would you tell them and why would they want to work for you? That comes down to the way I lead. Mm -hmm. So I think leadership is about having a very clear vision and being able to provide people with their role in that vision. So it's about saying this is where we're heading, not just in the near term, but in the longer term. So to take North Parks as an example, you know, the very clear vision there was during my time there, during 2014, we celebrated 20 years of operations. And that was a cause to reflect and say, well, 20 years is a long time. This Mm. mine was never supposed to operate for much more than 10 years. I think the initial mine life was sub 10 years. Right. And if you listen to the stories of the people who've been there a long time and they tell the story that we've been through some tough times and each time we've been through a tough time, we come back and there's still only five or seven or 10 years to go, but we get through that and we go again. This is the recipe for what's special about North Parks. And so we said, well, let's aim for a century. You know, we knew we had the resources. There's a lot of resources there, a lot of copper there in the ground, lower grade than it is now. It's going to take some leaps in technology to be able to get there. But, you know, there's 100 years of operation here. It actually is 100 years of operation. So let's put that vision to our people that we'll be here for a century. We really created the tagline, a century of mining together. That's just an example of you provide that long term and then you provide people with the role that they can play within that. That's, I guess, how I approach recruiting and leadership. What's tough times in mining? Is that you have instructed the quality that you're after? What does tough times actually mean? 
Tough times generally comes from falling commodity prices. Uh, okay. So right. you go into a commodity price slump, your cost base doesn't support that right. and your margins disappear. Or even worse, the demand for your product starts to fall off and you can't actually place your product into the market. Now, I've not been faced with that position, but I've certainly had colleagues faced with that position or talked about that time. It's an external driver. And I think for me, that's an external risk. You can't control. There is no way you can control as an individual operation. Nobody can control the commodity price cycle. It's one of those things where the invisible hand works. There's a lot of factors and predicting the future of commodity prices is also fraught, right? Because no one really knows how all these things are going to go. So I do not like predicting commodity prices. And so that's an external risk. So you turn that around and say, well, I can't control that. And this is the same in what I think about now as a board member. Can't control that risk. We can have a mitigating strategy if we get there which is things we will do if we are faced with those red flags coming up. But really the most important thing is to be preventative and have a cost structure which either you can take down quite quickly or you might deliberately decide that you're going to mine what would be higher cost tonnes, but you can switch that off fairly swiftly. You really need to work on having a very, very solid base. And I think maybe to just switch here, when Mm -hmm. I joined the New South Wales Minerals Council, the Minerals Council kind of lags behind the commodity cycle and the membership fees, which pay for the council, go up and down with the fortunes of the mining industry. And what was really important there and that what the CEO worked hard on there and I supported him to do that was to rebase the operating costs so that we could always function, have a core function that was going to be consistent and would be supported by all parts of the cycle. And then we would scale up other programs and other activities based on that. So we took the base operating costs down quite significantly. The CEO drove this, which meant some reductions in the number of people that worked there. But what what was really important is not to dilute the important functions and the policy brain power within the organisation. And that's very true about a mining operation as well, Sometimes you do have to look at, and I've been through this, taken 30-odd people out of an organisation and it wasn't fun. My choice was to start from the leadership and not start from the base, is just to have two senior leaders walk out of the business and then followed by, that was my choice. Now, it's so hard (laughs) to do that. But once you've done that, you've got a solid organisation to weather the storms, I guess. Why do you think all those years ago, Lee Clifford decided to back you? (laughs) Oh, that's a difficult question. He was probably influenced to do so. (laughs) Look, I was the first woman to hold that position, so it was a big call. Not that I – look, Lee was fantastic. To make it all even more complicated for him, I was basically pregnant at the time that he decided to offer me the role and he didn't know that. Uh, So he offered me the role and then I said, oh, actually, I am pregnant. And he said – Oh, that's really great. Now, we'll work that out. You know, his response was so wonderful because I was so afraid about telling him. I mean, in the end, I ended up with a bit more time and I did actually go on maternity leave a little later. He was fantastic. So I think I have to say this about Rio Tinto. Mm. I think it happens. I think it's still there. Look, I've been out of the company for a number of years now, but they have a really good talent management system where people are identified and both my husband and I went through this when we were in our early parts of our careers. We were identified, I guess, to be noted as to what we might do with our careers. And there was a deliberate choice to provide diversity in the career. Yes, okay. I think through a diverse mindset, thinking of we don't just need mining engineers. Most people behind me had been mining engineers. Mm -hmm. Let's bring somebody in that has a different, a more diverse background. So I think it was probably a combination of Rio Tinto's talent management process. (laughs) I know he enjoyed working with me. I do because I am in contact with him now and he's backed me. He said, look, you know, I think you do have something to offer as a board member. And that was a huge transition point for me to hear him say that, to say, look, your international and your operational expertise is actually quite rare. And to be able to offer that to a board is really quite valuable. So just rolling that back a little bit, you obviously have to fulfill the obligations and the opportunities which came along. By background, Steph, are you ambitious? Are you well-structured? Now, you, obviously, there was a reputation. He wouldn't take a risk either. He's going yeah. to mitigate that risk just as much as you are. So talk us through that, Stephanie. 
I'm definitely ambitious. You know, I like to achieve and I like to get things right. I really believe in doing things well. If you're going to do it, do it really well. The role I was in probably was an opportunity for me to showcase my analytical and strategic thinking because I was in a role where I was able to see the whole value chain, everything from resources through to selling diamonds. Mm -hmm. And I had put together a couple of ideas and presented those to the group executive at the time who was for diamonds. And I think I was challenging the way things had already been done. Now, I may not have been right. I don't even think I was at the time, but at least I was getting in there and saying, hey, I've had a look at this data. I see things a little bit differently and this is what I'd like to challenge. And this is what the ideas that I have. And I wasn't really all that shy. I think I can pitch a strategic idea relatively well. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do that then. And I think that comes from a, a background in geology, if I tell the truth, because right. geology is sort of 50% or less based on facts because you drill holes in the ground or you collect rocks, but you never have a complete picture. No. And the other part of it is mm. selling the story, mm. is getting people to buy into the fact that I've got a few sparse facts here, but I've got a really good idea about how I can pull them together and what it actually looks like. So lots of practice at that, getting exploration managers to back drill holes or additional funding for programs and all that sort of stuff. So putting that into practice probably as well. So I think that probably played a role is that in that role assisting the CEO, you want someone who can relate to people, you want somebody who can understand what's going on at an exco level. And I think that's something I can do as well is I, I can get myself up the curve, even if I don't understand I mean, I remember sitting through a conversation about the price of oil. What yep. was going to be our bet on the price of oil? And every ex-co member had a view, of course, or most of them did. And I'm thinking, I've never even thought about the price of oil. How do I understand this? I'm sitting there going, right, okay, listen, 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 understand, understand, go away. Okay, right, now I've got a view. And I was able to have a conversation with Lee, not only about the process, but also the outcome. You left the executive career. Mm. Why did you leave and why did you pursue boards at a pretty early age? Yes, that was a bit of a bet. So mm. I had... And why did you place it? Well, Lee helped me. Oh, okay. Myself. Um, I was setting myself up to transition into a board role. So I had quite deliberately taken an approach at North Parks. We had a joint venture committee. And I had taken an approach to treat that joint venture committee a bit like a board and try and manage it like a board. I had deliberately targeted the Minerals Council Board to get that experience and exposure. And I'd done my AICD company director's course. In fact, very nicely, the Australian Government Scholarship Program offered me the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. And so with that combination, I was setting myself up to, and I had joined or was in the process of joining a local board for a community services organisation. I was beginning to set myself up to demonstrate that I had the capabilities to transition from hands-on executive role to hands-off, which is the hard bit, but hands-off kind of more strategic and governance and risk management. So I saw risk management as a kind of foundation. I think I'm good at thinking about risk. I think I'm good about thinking about strategy. And if those two things come together, I think I can make a good board member. And so when I was faced with the decision to leave CMOC International, which I have to say that decision point came a bit earlier than I was planning. Not that I had it all planned out, you know, to the day, but I was thinking that there might be a couple more years of executive roles. I thought, well, why don't I just have a go? And I have to say, Greg, I'm going to be honest, I also thought that it's about time there's a few more women out there having a go, right? And I wanted to have a go. (laughs) So I thought, well, I've got at least a bit of a reputation that I can build off. So why not get out there? So I did. And how easy is it to have a go? It is difficult to get a start. Yeah. Now I was fortunate. I don't really know how to judge this in retrospect, but I was fortunate somewhat to be in the right place at the right time. So there was the first board, I joined a community services board Catholic Care Will Kenya Forbes, really important community services organisation. But really, you know, that was following my passions around regional economic development and making sure that vulnerable people don't get left behind. And But Cleantech, which was my first board appointment, were working in the North Parks area. I know a couple of people who are on the board. I didn't actually know the chairman at that time. He had previously worked for Rio Tinto. I'd never met him, but he invited me to speak to him and we had a conversation and I went and met the board. So 
potentially it was proximity. I probably should ask him exactly why. I think he thought that I would be, you know, valuable because of my operating experience as well as the local knowledge. So there was a combination of things. I do think we've got a really good board. We all fit together quite nicely. (laughs) So, but there was something about being in the right place at the right time with that. I deliberately stepped down from the Minerals Council board and I had recruited my successor, so I was quite happy about that. But I did step down because I felt that in order to lead that council, you needed to be a leader of industry. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be continue to be have a leadership role in the New South Wales minerals industry. So I deliberately stepped down and yep. handed over that transition, which worked out really well. And that transition has then happened recently again into the next chair. Again, somebody who's a veteran of the industry, actually from the metalliferous side. So that's really good. Weren't you, Steph, weren't you the first woman chair? I was, the- yeah. Again, why do they vote that in? There's been a huge change in the way the industry sees itself. And I think I was part of a kind of deliberate move. When I first came to New South Wales, 2012, I'd been out of Australia for a really long time. So I didn't have any context. Mm -hmm. I just came in. And I think it was just after coalition government had been voted in in was it 2011? must have been 2011. (laughs) So it was a fairly fresh government after having a Labor government. And that Labor government, as we know, in New South Wales was a bit problematic in terms of everything that's come out afterwards. So there was this bit of a tense kind of environment, the relationship between government generally, regardless of the colours, the relationship was a bit fraught with the mining industry. The mining industry was kind of I don't know, a bit angry. Things were booming. And so the boom was papering over the cracks, if you like, of the relationship. Now, the Minerals Council, Steve Galilee as the CEO, really worked on that relationship, really worked on the way that industry was presenting itself and engaging, not only with government, but I think it was also with community Mm -hmm. and with the community more broadly. I wouldn't say it was necessarily broken, but I think there was some real angst in there. My view coming in was I need to continue this journey that we're on to change the face, to make the mining industry more diverse, to show more diverse faces, to show more diverse voices, to talk about different things. And I really think these days, and one of the big things that I think is important for me on the boards I'm on, right now, we fret a little bit about government processes, about getting projects approved. And yeah, look, there's bumps and lumps along the way, and sometimes it's difficult. But overall, it's a fairly robust process. You'd have to say it's robust. It definitely looks at everybody's concerns. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that can really trip a mine up or an exploration project up and I've seen this and heard these stories, is not engaging appropriately with your community. Right, okay. And neglecting the engagement with community and taking the community for granted. Yeah, okay. And I've seen stories told where a partner or an exploration company has just stopped engaging or just not engaged in the right way. The relationship has fallen apart with the local landholders or the community and it's actually delaying the projects by one or two years. Yeah, right. I'm not sure that 10 years ago we would have been as alert to this risk. Mm-hmm. I think we would have been watching it, but I don't think we would have seen it as a showstopper type of alert. And I think that's the one thing that is quite clear in New South Wales in particular is that if your community and your landholders or broadly doesn't see benefit in what you're doing and you haven't engaged with them and explained They may not necessarily not like you, but if they can really hold you up, some people would say that's a fault in the system. I don't think it's necessarily a fault in the system, but the community has a lot of say around how projects go ahead. And as a board member, I see that as a really important risk to watch. So were you happy with what you achieved with the Minerals Council? Definitely. Yeah, I was really happy. You know, in the couple of years that I was there, I think I personally enjoyed the engagement that I had with policymakers. The campaign has moved so much since then, but the campaign that you might see on TV at the moment where you've got people saying, I'm a mining engineer and I live in parks or I'm a data engineer and I live in Newcastle, whatever it might be. The start of that campaign was developed when we were there, which was about changing the faces and voices of the industry. I also think I'm really quite proud of the fact that just from a board governance point of view, which is quite boring, (laughs) but we actually reviewed what we did and we made sure that what was documented was not just custom and practice, but was actually reflected in the way we, our charter, well, our documents, if you like, our governance documents. 
I'm also really proud of the fact that I recruited my successor because I think thinking about succession planning and making sure that we didn't have a revolving door of the same people coming in and out, we actually had fresh faces. And I think John Richards, who succeeded me, I know he really enjoyed being chair. So it was great. Yeah, really proud of that time. Stephanie, what's diversity to you? Diversity is a whole bunch of things. That's a very big question. But when I think about diversity, I think about the lady whose book I think about. She's from Deloitte and she's released a book that says two heads are better than one Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And she talks about diversity of thinking, right, which is I think that's where I start is that diversity of thinking. So she talks about seven or eight different thinking styles and I've experimented with those actually in, in understanding where people sit on those. Gosh, I wish I could remember her name and give her a bit of a plug. Her book's amazing. I think it's required reading. That diversity of thinking. So I think if you have at the core diversity of thinking, what feeds into that is diversity of experience. When I say experience, that means where you might have been and what industry you might have been in and those sorts of things. And then I think there is an element of gender and race because they represent their proxies for these other things that we think about with diversity. So I was yesterday on a judging panel with a bunch of women. You know, it was really collegiate and we know one another, but we're not great mates. We see one another at functions. And I thought to myself, you know, one of the things that really enhances diversity, and it wasn't because it was women. Yes, it was a bunch of women and we were judging a women in mining thing. But what it was, was there was no big egos. That's my reflection. There was no big egos where anyone was trying to dominate or thought that their opinion or didn't have a good opinion of anybody else. And we came from diverse backgrounds, different career trajectories, different lawyers, different backgrounds. I said at the end, I said, gee, we worked well together, you know, because there was no one trying to dominate or to put anyone, not that anyone would put anyone down overtly, but I have to sum it up as there was no egos. And I think that is really what fosters a diverse environment and you can really capture your diversity if you've got a really genuinely collegiate group of people. Okay. Talk us through the stepping stones then becoming a board director in the ASX listed environment. One, how difficult it is to get in and two, is it really matching what you thought it would? The last part of that question is easy. Yes, it is matching what I thought it would be. I knew it would be challenging. I knew that I would make some mistakes along the way and I have and that's okay. I've got great board members who nod and knowingly look and (laughs) give me a pat on the back and off we go. You know, it's really challenging. Keeping in mind you've got disclosure requirements, you need to be aware of duties as a director and I think to act on behalf of everyone, right, and increasingly that expectation is not just on behalf of shareholders but it's on behalf of your employees and your community and your overall stakeholders. You've always got to keep that in mind. So to me, that is challenging and I really love it because being able to put myself in the shoes of other people and think about things, I enjoy that. I find it challenging and I'm learning stuff about how other people think along the way. Now, the stepping stones to get there, clearly joining Cleantech and having a bit of a profile, if you like, in Mm -hmm. the industry in New South Wales was probably quite advantageous for me in terms of getting on people's radars. I do think I needed to be on people's radars in order to think about it. But I'll tell you the story about St. Barbara. So I'm on Mm. the St. Barbara board as well. And I actually targeted St. Barbara. Now, I don't know if this is how it works, (laughs) but in my mind, (laughs) when I joined Cleantech, even before Cleantech, I thought I want to join a couple of mining companies, but I also want to go outside the mining industry. So So you're you're going to play off your strength to start with, eh? Establish a reputation in mining and then potentially launch into some broader... I dabble a little bit with some voluntary work with Telstra around telecommunications. I find it fascinating. You know, I do some work in community services. I'm fascinated by that. And I can take myself up the learning curve relatively swiftly. So that's something that I can use to my advantage. And you're also not living in smack bang, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth or Brisbane, eh? Where are you living, Steph? (laughs) I am speaking to you (laughs) from uh, from Kangaroo, which is north of Orange on the way to Molong. It's quite important to me to be there, you know, to be regionally based. You know, I did speak to a couple of people about that and Mm. say having a regionally based director, is that of any interest? For mining companies, I think it is an advantage because I do live in a mining area. I live up the road from Cadia. I travel frequently to Parks and Forbes where North Parks and Evolution Cal are in the vicinity and there are projects being developed around us. So I am very connected to the community and to 
suppliers to community groups, et cetera. So, you know, I hear, I listen and I hear as to how they're perceived in the community and how people talk about them. It's also that part of that diversity of thought too, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's Mm. seeing things from a regional perspective. So, you know, I've made a cornerstone of what I do is that everything I do needs to come back to the theme of regional economic development and linking it back into that. So businesses that have a regional footprint, businesses that operate in the regions, businesses that are interested in the regions. That comes to companies that are potentially thinking about, I don't know, I'd use the Amazon example, you know, should Amazon's distribution centre really be in Melbourne or mm. should it be in regional Australia? Yeah. Actually, it probably should be in parks because there's a crossroads there. Absolutely. You know, that sort of stuff. So, so I think I can contribute there. But back to the, I had a bunch of companies on my list where I went through and I spent hours and hours looking yeah. through annual reports, corporate governance statements, sustainability reports, just what was available publicly looked at board members and looked and thought, who would I like to be a part of? And St. Barbara was on that list. Mm-hmm. And I was so thrilled to be given the opportunity to join that board because I wanted to join that board. Their reputation and what they'd done, particularly around gender diversity, was one thing, but I think they also have a very interesting and diverse operation up in Simberry in Papua New Guinea. really important part of the community. It is the economic driver of the community. And so to me, some people would look at that and say, whoa, that's a bit dangerous. No, it's really an opportunity because you've got an opportunity to set a community up for a generation or more. It's about what you do beyond mining as well as what you do during mining. And I think what they're doing up there, what we are doing up there, because I'm part of it now, is phenomenal in terms of setting up an economy for success beyond mining. And that's really important to me. So in your experience in the boardroom and with the coverage that every board director gets in the press these days, are the boards focusing on the right things? Is it too much waiting on risk versus business? I would say that, and, and this is talking to people as well as my own experience, mm-hmm. that there is a lot of time spent on assurance, which is okay, but the expectations, I think I've seen a shift where previously We might have had a discussion. Let's take tailings, for example. Let's take in mining, we've had the tailings disasters. There's no other way to describe it in Brazil. Awful, awful thing. It focuses the mind. Okay, right, well, is this something that could happen to us Mm. and what are we doing about it? So there's a knee-jerk response, which there should be. We need to check this because it's very current. But I think as, as part of that, I'm seeing that there is more focus Now, there's a good amount and then there's possibly some which are going a bit far, but there's a good amount of focus on ESG issues, so environment, social and governance issues, More probably more environment. Safety has always been very big, high on the list for mining and health. Mental health is climbing up there and we've seen the FIFO Workers Mental Health Code of Practice come out from WA government, which I think is excellent, although it's very much a guideline. They haven't actually put any must-dos in there. It's all about this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. That sort of stuff is getting higher on the agenda, which is a good thing. Okay. However, I think it has the risk of going into going down into the weeds in those areas because of the pressure of the community and the media about these issues. I mean, imagine being asked as a board member a detailed question about what is the insurance regime around your tailings dam. Now, as a board member, what I need to know is that these are the risks that have been evaluated for this tailings dam. These are the controls that are in place. These are the people that I know that there's somebody allocated to managing the controls. And I might have gone out there and said, Tell me about how these controls are genuine and provided some evidence. But if I was expected to know exactly how all that worked, that's really difficult for me to fathom Mm. because Mm. imagine having to know the detail around all of those risks. And I think this comes out of the expectations of community members around what the bank is doing about particular issues. I don't know. I probably shouldn't delve into that area because I'm not an (laughs) expert in that area. But the expectations of the media and the community generally around the level of detail that board members are expected to be across is actually a little bit scary. Yeah. I was in a couple of meetings this week and I had two directors say they had to read reports, the monthly report, over 600 pages, which is enormous amount of reading, bearing in mind, as you say, you're a part-time, you're not a full-time executive, you're there for a more strategic role as opposed to an operational role. So I think we have lost sight of that. And it seems like it's an easy targeting from the press to sort of bring down the board director if they can. 
Yeah, it's kind of a gotcha, you know, kind of question. But I think there's an issue here around trust. So trust but verify is a common statement that people have. And that's something that I would say is very important when it comes to risk is trust but verify. I really strongly believe that best practice around risk is to dive into a risk area every now and then, dive into it, get in and dirty with the controls. And if that means making a site visit and talking to the people who are on the front line, you know, in tailings, you know, there will be somebody who is qualified at the site or more than one person, but there is people who are operators potentially who go around and they do a, a visual check or they do some sort of check, which is part of the assurance regime, which is on a daily basis. I would want to go and talk to them and say, tell us about your job. You build up your confidence from that. So go and do that every now and then. I think that is best practice in risk is to dive into a risk, but not dive into every risk all the time. You've got to be confident that your risk regime is robust, that the processes are robust. And if you've got competent people, they're going to work within those. The view of board is, is there anything missing? Are there any gaps in this from my experience and my exposure? Dip down into it to provide really strong verify, that verify component of the fact that these controls are working, these people do exist <laughs> and they are doing their rounds every morning and they don't skip it. They're not taking shortcuts. What would you change in the boardroom? Would you have more skin in the game, Stephanie? Actually, you know, I had a very interesting discussion. Our role is very much to not think about ourselves. It's to think about the longevity of a company. Yes. And I think I might yeah. have told you that I like to give a company a personality. Yeah. I like to describe it in terms of to give it a bodily appearance, you know, to give it some personality characteristics, which I think are representative of its time, and then provide an environment that it sits in. And that's how I think about the company. And that's how I think about what is best for the company. Given this personality characteristic, I've embodied the company in a being what is best for the company. I am very concerned when I hear analysts from investment banks or other colleagues in the kind of government space talk about the fact that a lot of things or sometimes the impediment to good governance is directors acting in their own interests which just horrifies me because it's almost like the oath of being a director is I will just not operate in my own interests. so whether I have skin in the game shouldn't matter I'm there to act in the interests of everybody now I think it is good practice to have some financial investment in the companies that you work for and I'm yeah. working towards doing that with St. Barbara, very difficult because virtually everything is a blackout period. So we're working towards that. We're coming up with a solution for that. But I don't think it's critical. I think it's good practice because Mm -hmm. I think it does provide evidence that you've got skin in the game, literal skin in the game. But I do think that it's our duty to act in the best interest of that company. I know I shouldn't be naive and there are people who don't always do that, but geez, don't be a director. If you can't put your own ego and your own self-interest aside, just rethink what you're doing. Do something else. <laughs> okay. Now, let me ask you something. If I was a chair in a very different sector, not from mining, so you've built your reputation out of mining and you've placed a couple of bets which have come through and you're building your NED career off the base of that. So there's a reason why you're in that room because of your contribution. What other sectors would you think would I take a risk and bring you into my board? And would I bring you into a media company? Would I have you in all sorts of different board stuff? What do you think about that? Because again, diversity. But the flip side of the whole equation is ultimately the business has to perform. The chief exec does appreciate people actually have some experience in the boardroom. So where is too much? What are your thoughts? And I'm just thinking out loud, you're building your board portfolio. What would be the (laughs) next type of board you'd be looking at? I think boards that have a strong operation, so manufacturing, so that could be manufacturing Linus is in the news, that sort yes. of manufacturing, so or fertiliser manufacturing or any sort of manufacturing that has what I would call a high-risk operational component. That might be electricity generation. It could be downstream manufacturing in the mining industry, those sorts of sectors. The operational experience that I have, I think, is transferable because we're talking about managing risk in operations. A lot of that risk is to do or fundamentally comes from safety, maintenance, et cetera. So I can bring that sort of expertise and risk management experience from that. I think the regional footprint, we could be talking logistics, we could Mm. be talking materials in regional areas. And look, I'm learning about telecommunications, you know. I, I think I could really contribute. They have a customer base, they have an infrastructure base, regional communications companies or along those lines. 
because there is a large technical component to that. Maybe I could win Telstra spins out its Infraco. <laughs> I could have a go at that. I don't know. You know, that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in. Yeah. Is your international experience valued enough? Well, I'd like to think it is somewhat valued. I think the international experience specifically is it's about understanding difference, right, and understanding that the Australian way of doing things isn't always right or best. You know, it's about understanding that other governments, other companies that come from different countries actually have different ways of doing things. I don't like pitting a Western style or Australian style approach to a other approach. I would prefer to say it's different. And my exposure to working and understanding the Japanese companies, Chinese companies, Indian companies, they all operate differently. It's not just a country culture, it's actually the individual culture of the business. So yes, there is an underlying country culture, but there is something about the company culture, like not all companies in Australia are the same, for goodness sake. So it's about saying, understanding that corporate culture. So that's probably more what I think I bring from my international exposure is that ability to see the difference and value the difference. You've got international exposure. What's your thoughts on Australian companies working with China? What do we need to take into consideration? Probably that is, you know, coming down to what I just said. China is different. It does have a state-run economy. There is a grand plan. I saw enough in my exposure to understand that it's all part of a bigger picture in China and everybody has a part to play. We could have that in Australia if we had a really strong vision about what our country looked like. It's not because it's a communist environment, but I do think there is a very strong vision in China of what China is going to be. Belt and Road is part of that, but it's not just about Belt and Road. And so there's a very strong vision. State-owned companies in particular know exactly where they fit in that vision. And then each of those state-owned companies has its own way of operating. There is so much advantage to be had from that because there are some really skilled people and there are some skilled organisations. Now, they operate differently to what we do. So when we transplant them into our environment, we need to think about helping everyone make the transition. And that means that the Australian partner or the Chinese partner both need to transition to create something new. I think that would be my view of how that works because it's so hard to make generalisations. But that would be my overall generalisation is see the difference, value the difference and move together to have something. But be very clear, each Chinese company, I believe, Mm -hmm. has a very clear view of where they sit in the future. Okay. Steph, what's your thoughts on the Australian economy? (laughs) That's such a big question. I am very, very positive about the Australian economy, right? I'm not an economist. Sometimes I wish I was and I could understand these things a little bit better. But I'm encouraged by the increasing willingness to invest in infrastructure. So one thing I would say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this about infrastructure, and this is my exposure to telecommunications. We accept that roads, rail, and things like that are infrastructure projects that the government needs to build. They're Mm -hmm. never going to be built by the market. I think we've actually got to get to a point, and I think there is hints of this happening, but we've got to get to a point that telecommunications infrastructure is also in the same boat. Yeah. The telecommunications infrastructure that's going to be built by the market, so to speak, um, is probably done and dusted. That's why we have the black spot program because none of these black spots are going to be covered unless there is significant subsidy. It's not going to be a purely private company or public company investment. So we actually need to get over this. All levels of government need to get into this. Telecommunications is a strategic investment We are so reliant on telecommunications now. You basically can't interact with government unless you have an internet connection. You can, but increasingly it is difficult. In fact, I was talking to a lady in Orange who has been off the grid, so to speak, off the internet connection. She doesn't have a mobile phone and she reckons she's only got about a year left. (laughs) She says, I'm really, I'm wearing down. I can't get everything done. You know what? I'm really dependent. I'm going to have to make the transition. So I thought, wow, <laughs> that's saying something. How far is behind is the bush? From living in Sydney, obviously I don't get out there enough and I want to do it to you know mainly to go to the wineries or something like that. So maybe give us a view to our audience. Is there really two standards? Is it be a real difference? There is a difference if you're not in a centre because there's a whole lot of aspects about this. It's capacity and speed. Actually, a lot of people have their company or their work documents on the cloud somewhere, right? So they need a good internet connection to be able to do their work. 
So that's about bandwidth and it's about speed. That, in some areas, there isn't that. The size of the pipe, so to speak, that is connecting that particular tower or whatever mobile infrastructure it might be is not big enough. It's overloaded in the 3G spectrum versus the 4G spectrum. There's a lot of people who are still on 3G in the bush. We've got to get them off 3G. We've got to migrate them onto 4G and subsequently 5G phones to free up that part of the spectrum, which is congested in some areas. Okay. Yes. The capacity of the infrastructure is somewhat lagging and there is definitely gaps. So you would take it for granted, not that I would advocate talking on the phone where you're driving, but you would take it for granted that you could drive the length of Sydney and talk on the phone the whole time. Yes. In fact, that's what my mother-in-law does. She talks (laughs) on the phone, which is a great way to communicate with your family. I don't like doing that because I can't multitask. I can't talk on the phone and drive at the same time. But you certainly can't do that in the bush. Is that right? And in a lot of places. We watch over those kangaroos, don't forget, too, out there. So Yeah, that's right. Now, there are fixes to this. You can get extenders and things like that. Yep. But there are still gaps in the coverage. And I think that yeah. for the community, if you have increasingly were expected to be connected all the time yeah. and be able to be contacted all the mm. time and to be able to work continuously, and I think when there are gaps, yep. you're not supporting the more regional parts or rural parts of yep. the bush. I'd like to see more government investment in that area as a strategic infrastructure. Couldn't agree more. That's the reason we asked the question. Stephanie, looking back from that young lady who walked and saw mum and dad and said, I'm going to become a geologist, to those building that career in the boardroom now, what advice would you give young Stephanie? What would be different? That's so hard. But, you know, I think I would say just continue to give everything a go because I gave everything a go, right? And that was the environment that I was brought up in. I had teachers who encouraged me to give everything a go. I had parents that encouraged me to give everything a go. I had a go at bricklaying, for goodness sake. <laughs> did you? You know? Yes, I went and did an exposure <laughs> day at Tate. Look, this is way back in the 80s. How far have we not come with girls in trades? Well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I'm probably better off here being here than being a bricklayer, but geez, it would have been good. I enjoyed it. So that's the thing, you know, keep giving everything a go. I don't know if I'd change anything because I don't know that there was anything (laughs) particularly wrong or particularly that I didn't give a go. But, yeah, maybe give everything a go and maybe do more of that. (laughs) In that point of view, and it comes up in all the discussions at the moment, diversity, diversity, and then it comes to gender. Are females not giving it enough go or not everyone's cutting the mould and going to be, like you said, bricklaying? What's the difference, Steph? I would love to crack this, and this is complex. I had an experience where I was close to a cohort of high school students a few years ago, and we talked to them about what their ambitions were, and their ambitions in my mind were frustratingly limited to quite girly careers, right, hairdressers and childcare, and we need people in that. But the thing that was very clear to me is far too many people want to do those. Actually, we do have a shortage of childcare workers, but we don't need everyone to go into those careers. And so to be able to say back to them and say, but you can't all do that. Our town doesn't need 10 new hairdressers. It only needs probably one a year. And so what are you going to do beyond that? I am frustrated that it's societal, right? Mm. Societal expectations narrow the opportunities over time. I'm sure girls at 12 years old, they play, you know, I was at league tag training with my daughter they play league tag they give afl a go they play tackle league as well they have a go at it but somehow at the transition between 14 15 16 all of a sudden the options start to narrow and i wish i could crack that because one of the things i'd love to do is really foster a group of now 14 15 year olds into mining careers now they may not be there forever just have a go there's some good money in it for the first 10 years of your career and then go off and do something else because you'll learn so much so I kind of have a vision I might do that I don't know how I'm going to do it (laughs) but you know I'd love to foster people through the opportunities that the mining industry offers because it is so diverse all the things you learn and set yourself up for and maybe you do become a hairdresser or a beautician Mm -hmm. or you know, do something or manage a childcare centre, you will learn the skills that you need to do so many other things further on. So I thought the rhetoric was out there, Stephanie, that this has reached a fever point in the sense that this discussion is happening enough out there and the barriers are being broken. Are you saying it's a lot of talk and just not getting the outcomes or I I had to put you on the spot, Steph, but I might as well. We're talking about it as adults. I don't think the messages are getting through to where it matters is 14, 15, 16-year-old girls in particular. 
Right. We've got lots of programs. I think we've got individual successes, but I don't think society-wise we're actually getting there. I don't think yet. I don't think we've had a societal shift. I think we've had a shift in chat and we've got some areas of success, but I don't think societal-wise we've shifted our expectations of girls overall yet. And particularly, I'd have to say, in regional communities, it's not there yet. In the regional communities that I'm exposed to, I think we've got a bit more to go. We'll certainly support you on that, Stephanie. <laughs> Why don't we aim maybe in the next 24 months to catch up again and see where the journey's going? Because otherwise, it's just kind of fall by the wayside of a lot of good attempts. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, I'll find a way to drive my cohort. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie, really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for dialing in today and being a guest of uh, No Limitations. Thank you for allowing me to be a regional part of No Limitations, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.